Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing app businesses. We sit down with the entrepreneurs, investors, and builders behind the most successful apps in the world to learn from their successes and failures. Subclub is brought to you by RevenueCat. Thousands of the world's best apps trust RevenueCat to power in-app purchases, manage customers, and grow revenue across iOS, Android, and the web. You can learn more at revenuecat.com. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard, and with me today, RevenueCat CEO, Jacob Eiding. Our guest today is Guillaume Ross, co-founder and CEO at Heavy, a workout planning and tracking app. Prior to founding Heavy, Guillaume launched several startups, built a bunch of apps, and then worked as a product manager at fitness app 8Fit. On the podcast, we talk with Guillaume about how Heavy got traction early on, growing without paid marketing, and why you might not want to raise your price, even if customers are willing to pay it. Hey, Guy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Been a long time coming. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. Oh, thanks, man. And Jacob, always nice to chat with you. Yeah, I'm super excited to be chatting with Guy today. We've been going back and forth. I mean, you've been a Revenue Cat user for at least three years, I think. I yeah. don't know. I was looking today. Yeah. But one of our early users and I've always been really good at giving us good feedback and helping us develop the product and I think give a good sense of the industry and stuff. So I'm excited to dig in on the story and learn what you guys have been up to. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So Guy, you have this fantastic Twitter thread. We're going to link to it. We could spend 45 minutes just talking through this thread, but it's such a cool story, how you got started in apps. So I just wanted to ask, like, where did you get started? And then what kind of led up to building Heavy, which we're going to talk about today? So I think the first main thing was that I was around like 16 years old and I just wanted to build something. And the first thing that came to mind was building physical products. But building physical products as a 16-year-old, like <laughs> it's pretty inaccessible and super expensive. So I was like, hey, these apps are a new thing. Maybe I can start playing around with that. So yeah, I just kind of started with building some games on Objective-C, moved over to some game builders, building some more complex games and stuff. And yeah, after a few years of, of actually being pretty deep in the hyper-casual like mobile app gaming industry, building tons of app games, I'd kind of reached the point where I didn't have the success that I wanted, like none of the apps that I was making were working out. I think maybe after five years of building apps, I had maybe made like two or $300 in total, (laughs) (laughs) maybe over like 10 or 15 games. I'll tell you, it's great to have done that while you were in high school, (laughs) you know, college, living with your parents and stuff. I I had a few of those like total bombs, but I had kids to raise. (laughs) That's why you don't tell anybody your revenue. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's such a great learning experience. I mean, every one of those failures, like you learn so much from. Yeah, it really is. And I built a couple like non-gaming apps during that time as well. I think got to a point where I was like, okay. I'm really invested in this industry. Like this is what I want to do, but I haven't had that success yet. So maybe something's missing in my skill set. So that's when I went to work at a startup called 8Fit Fitness App. And that's kind of where I put all these different experiences that I had had before, like all together. Just being a indie game developer, just indie 
developer, period. Sometimes like questions your skill set, you know, because you're like designing a little bit, you're like marketing a little bit, you're coding, you're like conceptualizing ideas and monetization and this and that. So for me, it was kind of weird because I, I didn't know how it like fit into a real company. But being a product manager made sense because that's kind of what you do. You're like touching a bit of everything and yeah. doing design. And like, did, did somebody tell you that that's, oh, you sound like a product. Did you take some job test score? No, thing like no, no, I didn't tell you what your, your skills are. No, actually what I did was I applied to around 70 jobs and I kept track of like everything in an Excel sheet. And I was applying to like online marketing manager, like junior intern for whatever but where I had like the most responses was in being a product manager. So I was like, okay, like maybe this is something that fits into me. I started reading <laughs> more into it. Career development is what that is, I think. And I was like, okay, like this really fits. It's like indie hack right there. If you're struggling with your indie apps and you can afford to go take a junior level PM job to get that <laughs> yeah. context of like bringing it all together, like building the great product, user interviews, like a lot of the skills like you don't necessarily build if you're focused on engineering and just building the apps yourself. So then I mean, the story goes, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but then you got laid off at 8Fit, which I'm sure at the time just felt crushing, but you got right back up on your feet. So what happened after that? Yeah. So there's a big layoff at the company and I was like, okay, it's now or never. I want to build something again. It had been around a year and a half since I had built something up again. So uh, I got together with now my co-founder Desmond. He also worked at 8Fit. And the idea behind Heavy and the pain point that I had was back in university days, I was actually doing a lot of triathlons. And it was really fun to do triathlons because, you know, you're in this little team and you're always like training together. And after training, everyone will upload their activities to Strava and you'll compete on like different segments. And it was a combination of community, tracking and competition. And when I moved out to Berlin to work for 8Fit, I wasn't doing triathlon anymore, but I started going to the gym. And anyone that's gone to the gym will tell you that it can be a pretty solitary experience. So I was kind of missing that community feel from those triathlon days. And we just got to thinking like, okay, maybe we can take that like Strava vibe and apply it to weightlifting. And David, I know you're a big FitBod fan. I was listening to the, the podcast the other day. He says he's the biggest fan of every app we have. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> just, but yeah, like in the beginning, social doesn't feel like it makes that much sense as a new user. But then, like, you get into it and you're like, whoa, I can start seeing like my friends' workouts. I can see my brother's workouts and we can like compete with each other. And it actually becomes like a pretty important retention driver because not only do you invest so much into the product with your own data and tracking and analytics, but also with the community that you form on the app. Did you have the social aspect as part of your thesis from the very beginning or yeah. was that something that you sort of developed? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely for the beginning. You had this idea, Strava for weightlifting, and you knew it was going to be social heavy. What was the MVP? Like, how did you get to 1.0? And I mean, imagine having worked at 8Fit and probably having the bar set super high. Sometimes getting to that 1.0, people will grind for years thinking, oh, it's got to be actually like Strava, but for weightlifters versus getting a 1.0 out. But you got a 1.0 out pretty quick. So how do you draw those lines in the sand to actually ship? So thankfully, I have an amazing co-founder, which will shoot down and just like call a lot of the ideas and crazy plans that I have. 
I initially went out and did a big exploration on what the app could look like as like my idea of an MVP. We sat down together and we're like, okay, now what is the real MVP? You know, like, <laughs> let's cut this, let's cut this, let's cut this. And it turns out that I had features designed back in the day, four years ago now, four and a half years ago, that still haven't been built to this day. So it was a great exercise of like getting rid of the non-essential stuff. And at the end of the day, like you have to build something super lean, especially it was just two of us. We wanted to bootstrap from the beginning. So it just made sense to keep it simple. How did you decide what to cut and what not to cut? Like what were the kind of things that went into that decision-making process? Because that's so hard. Yeah. I mean, it's honestly one of the hardest things in any product building. We do that at Revenue Cat. Like, what feature are we going to build next? And then what's most important? We also have that list I made in 2017 of things <laughs> yeah. that we still haven't built yet. That was going to be part of the MVP. I still have that list from 2019 when I joined. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Dave, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. <laughs> if only building could work at the speed of thinking. Am I yeah. right? Yeah. Well, follow yeah. me on LinkedIn. Yeah, maybe not with AI. Yeah. <laughs> so what was the thinking behind which features to cut, which features to keep, and what was going to actually be meaningful for that 1.0 to be successful? So from the very beginning, like we kind of had three pillars, which was tracking, analytics, and social. And we had to build an MVP of each of those three pillars. We wanted each to be valuable enough during the first few months of development so some apps just do tracking. Some apps just do analytics, like a Whoop or something. Some apps are just social. And trying to put all those three things together, like we had to be pretty aggressive in what we excluded from the MVP. So then you get to 1.0, you launch the app, and millions of people download it, and it's super successful on day one. You get all sorts of press. I mean, honestly, when I was prepping for this podcast, I was thinking... If you'd have told me in 2019 when you launched that somebody was launching another weightlifting app, I'd have been like, oh, geez, there's no way. It's so competitive. Fitness categories like played out. I would never have thought to launch a fitness app in 2019. So I imagine it was a bit of a struggle. Tell me about those early days with the 1.0. Yeah. So I think similar to a lot of app devs that build a decent product, users just start trickling in in the app store. There's this build it and they'll come. Of course, it's not true, but kind of true on the App Store. I mean, if you have a little bit of quality, right? A unit, a single atom yeah. of utility, right? Yeah, that will exactly. Be true. But yeah, so users started trickling in. We saw good retention, good feedback, and we were off to the races. So we launched around July 2019. And to our surprise, what happened in February 2020? COVID. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're trying so hard during those like first initial months to get in touch with Apple, get a feature, get a little boost. And we got Apps We Love feature, which for us was our first biggest feature by Apple. I think it was like someday in March. And the day after we were Apps We Love feature in the US, the entire US shut down. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole world shut down, all the gyms closed. And this momentum that we had going into 2020 just like got completely shut down by COVID. So it was actually a headwind. I would have assumed the opposite because I think so many people were bored and weightlifting is a thing, but I guess most folks don't have an at-home setup, right? Most, exactly. most folks are, have to go to a facility of some kind. 
Exactly. A lot of our users go to the gym. Yeah, we didn't have the luck that a lot of at-home workout apps had back in the day. So it was kind of a big block for, I'd say, maybe around a year. 2020 and maybe the beginning of 2021 was pretty rough with COVID. You guys didn't do anything to adapt the app for the circumstances or? No, no. What we thought is right now, no one's going to be building gym apps because <laughs> <laughs> COVID is not allowing anyone to go to the gym. If it was a gym. dumb idea before, now nobody's yeah. going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no guarantee that gyms are even going to come back to its full potential as they were before, right? But we just had the thinking of like COVID will pass. At some point, we'll come out the other end. And when we do come out, we'll just be better prepared than other competitors who maybe pivoted and wanted to do at-home workouts or something. I did want to step back. So you said you build it and people came. Were there specific keywords that you know you started ranking for? Was there word of mouth? Like we glossed over that a little bit, but this is like the real sticking point for so many apps is that they launch and just nobody finds them. So did you do ASO? Did you know like these are the keywords I think we can rank for and they're reasonably popular? Were you getting like 10 downloads a day or were you getting like a hundred and did that grow? I really want to dig into this like early, you built it and they came because it's just not the case for so many indie apps. You guys were doing some growth stuff. Were you running ASA and things like that in the early, early days or? No. During the early, early days, my ASO levels were very, very basic. We were just targeting the keywords that everyone else was targeting. And I feel like that's a good 80% approach for a lot of apps. Just do what everyone else is yeah. doing, at least in the very beginning. Just get You'll at least beat all the people that aren't doing anything, right? Yeah. So we just kind of started like that. And yeah, we're getting five, 10 downloads a day and it slowly started growing. See, I think that's an interesting, to actually talk about the numbers of downloads, like to start in the single digits, like oh, low yeah. double digits, which yeah, sounds yeah. like nothing, but it is nothing if you talk in comparisons to like a scaled app, like where you're getting hundreds and thousands a day. But in those early, early days, when really all you need is a couple of warm bodies try the app <laughs> to come back, right? Like it's all you need, right? You just yeah. need a little bit of that spark. Yeah. One to keep you going. I think that's probably a good lesson. This happened for revenue cap, certainly like in the first six months to a year and in B2B, especially in developer oriented frameworks and stuff like that. It is famine, right? You're like nothing <laughs> for weeks and then you get one hit, but that's kind of all you need. Yeah. Consumer, you 10 or a hundred X that, but still you really can you know, you talk about bootstrapping, like that's really kind of what it is, like just meal to meal. If you can get five in today, maybe try to get 10 in tomorrow and 12 in the next day and you just live to fight each day and like extract what you can from those five or 10 being probably primarily at that scale, you're not going to make meaningful revenue. Maybe you will, but like mostly you're going to get insights, you're going to get understanding, you're going to get customers, you're going to get word of mouth. But yeah, I think there's probably a lot of apps that could have been great if founders and the developers had not gotten self-conscious about how bad their downloads were in the early days, right? If they really believed in their thesis. Now, there's good counter arguments to that too, right? Like, I think there's this tremendous sunk cost fallacy or like opportunity cost story. Sometimes you'll see people focus on an idea for way too long. It never gets traction. When did you know that you maybe had something, right? You know, you started with a trickle. Was it like months that you started to see like things go continuously or was there ever a moment where maybe you and your founder... We're like, okay, I think this is real. 
Yeah, I think that moment was, and this kind of answers David's question before as well. It was when we started realizing that little communities were forming on the app of people that we had no idea who they were. So like we have the suggested users cell in the app. And like sometimes you'd see like a new user who you had never seen before. And, you know, you'd click on them and start seeing like, whoa, they're following three people and they have three followers. That's like a little group. And then you'd like click into those followers and then like discover that they were all interfollowing each other. And we're like, it's not our friends and family anymore. Like people are forming these like little communities and like little almost influencers are forming inside the app with like the super rudimentary like algorithm we had for suggesting users. Good users would go to the top of that suggestion. You would actually elevate like users who are highly active and yeah, things like this. Yeah, so exactly. folks could see things like exactly. even if they didn't have a network coming into the app or they weren't recommended into the app by somebody. Interesting. And having that social component probably was like a nice flywheel is, yeah, you started out those first few months, five, 10, 12 downloads, but then those five, 12, 10 downloads start turning into, you get 1.2 users for every download. And then you're getting like 1.3 users for every download and people are inviting more friends. And like having that social component is pretty incredible flywheel to start building. That K factor, you know, how many downloads you get per download, like each download begets one download, that's runaway growth, right? But that can be really, really hard to measure in the early days because it's a probably a power law distribution where most users recommend nobody. And then like you'll have a handful of power users who are like spread the word of mouth like crazy, right? And not even in the early days, even now it's like really hard to measure that K factor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, because it's like there's K factor amongst all downloads. There's K factor amongst some limited set. I remember people used to focus on it a ton. I think it's also really tough to tell when a user is downstream of a recommendation from another user, right? There can be tracking and things maybe, but a lot of the times somebody bumps into somebody at the gym or like somebody sees the app and says like, what are you using? And then, you know, they may never send a link or they may never become friends in the app and things like this. But I can see how as a, this is real moment, right? Like seeing those molecules of social graph start to form where you've got like cohesive units and stuff like that. Did you reach out to those users and talk to them? Have you made that a part of your practice to like get on the phone with people if you can? No, we used to do it back in the day, but No, it's not something that we've done too often. We try to take in as much feedback as possible. We ask for feedback all the time inside the app. And we're like always in contact with with users by email. And that seems to be a great way to just gather feedback. But yeah, I wish I had baked that into my like routine. Yeah, it's not too late. Yeah, it's not make a call today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on the phone with a customer right now. See (laughs) see how I did that? (laughs) So you were bootstrapping. At what point did this become a full-time job or pay the bills? Were you just like living on ramen and actually working full-time on this? Or were you taking consulting gigs? Like at what point did it actually start making enough revenue to provide a living for you and your co-founder? It probably took us around like a year, year and a half since we launched Heavy Pro, the subscription part, which was... I think nine months since we started working on the app. Wow. Um, so two years, more than two years. Yeah, totally. probably like a year and a half or something since we started working on it. We started becoming like rum and profitable. Wow. But I have to say that when I got laid off from my job, Germany is fantastic and <laughs> there were unemployment benefits <laughs> that could be taken advantage of. And, you know, while there was no revenue coming in, that was, yeah, extremely helpful. 
it's like an order of magnitude harder to take something off the ground if you don't have the ability to think long term and without constant pressure on top of you that you just have to make ends meet and just like pay for your bills at the end of the month. Thankfully, that was taken care of by unemployment. And that just allows you to think without optimizing for short term gains. And that comfort can be living at home as well, which I also did afterwards because unemployment ran out and we still weren't making enough money. Like <laughs> I moved back home and yeah, just to be able to be calm and be able to think long-term. This is something Sam Altman's talked about a lot or used to in the day, which is talking about someone's personal burn rate as like a measure of their ability to take opportunities. And there's ways you can scale that up and scale that down. Some are, as we get later in life, they just happen usually do just scale up through you're having kids or like whatever. And I think it's in some ways why entrepreneurs like startup entrepreneurs skew young because they often have like fewer responsibilities tied to them. But yeah, I mean, it's totally true. I think it's one of the reasons so many people raise money, right? It's like not always because you're thinking about, oh, this is a billion dollar exit. and I'm a good fit for venture capital. It's because you kind of want to hold on to one boat before you grab another, right? And raising money can be a good way to do that. Revenue cat, we kind of had a gap, but that was, again, my wife and I had saved a lot of money that we burned for those like nine months when I was not working or not getting paid. And then we eventually raised. But I think it's also something that gets overlooked and it's a shame. And it's why like, I think that long-term thinking thing, I don't think enough people think about it in terms of how do I structure, you know, we're talking about the very early beginnings of building something. Like, how do I structure my life? in order to allow me to have a solid crack at this. Because, you know, if your personal runway had run out sooner and you had like a half success, but like not something you could live on, like you might have just not wanted to give up, but like mentally that can start to really weigh and you can start to like start looking across the fence. Is the grass greener? Should I go just get a gig where that, you know, they're going to pay me 10K a month, right? And I'm going to be comfortable and stuff like that. And yeah, it's tough. I call it the killing zone when an app is between zero and $10,000 in revenue, basically. Like there's just... A million ways you can die in that period. Quotey fingers die, like the app, whatever, doesn't take off. Founders run out of money, like all this stuff. But then you kind of cross that ramen profitable be another term. It's like once you get past that, then it's like, well, okay, it may not be exploding, but you've got something, right? And you can start to now like reinvest and like the numbers are big enough now that things start to move. So, but that's a pretty long run. I don't think all founders would have grounded out that long. <laughs> yeah. Just... Yeah. I think that's like a super pivotal moment as well. Cause you transition from like being super stressed about money and just like trying to make ends meet and like burning savings to, Oh, okay. Now if it just like stays here, if I'm just like round profitable and I can just like coast now, that allows me to start thinking bigger picture again. I can start thinking longer term. Yeah, it was really cool in that Twitter thread that I think when you were 16 or sometime like really young, you had this piece of cardboard that said oh, yeah. there was like a thermometer. Oh, you still have it. Well, it's going to be super messy, but... There it is. Okay. For those of you listening on the podcast, he pans over oh, no. and shows this cardboard thermometer he made that goes from zero to a million downloads. It's over there. <laughs> it's blurry. So what's really cool is that you ground and ground and ground on heavy. And I believe it was in December, you hit a million downloads. But what's so cool is that that's been accelerating. I believe you hit another milestone. Did you hit it in May as expected? Yeah. Yeah. We just hit 2 million users yesterday or two days ago. Wow. So let's add that up. So you took, what, three years to get to one yeah. and then five months to get to two? Yeah. 
I believe they call that a hockey stick. Uh, <laughs> when that, but it's amazing how many systems are like this, right? If you can get out of that like long, it feels flat, it feels super slow. But like once you can get out of there, you know, I'm sure that wasn't just great product, right? Like, have you guys done? You've had to do something. Like, did you introduce a growth tactic in the last year? Like, what has caused the acceleration in your mind? Frankly, I think just like the compounding of all the product energy that we've put into it over the past few years. And then the big jump happened in New Year's. So everyone knows that for fitness apps, like they just like really grow during New Year's resolutions. And yeah, we've been seeing that over the past few years and it just like elevates you in comparison to where you were last year. And I think you're able to like sustain that with a good product. Otherwise you would just like crumble down. I imagine part of what's been happening is that as the app has built to that million downloads, you've been teaching the algorithms that you're actually a really great result because people come to your app, they spend money, they retain, and the app stores, both Apple and Google, are getting more and more sophisticated about how the algorithms use those longer term signals for putting you higher in search results. So I imagine that that's been part of that slow compounding. I hope that's and true, then, David. I really hope that's <laughs> true. I, that's, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Apple says they're doing it, but Google, I mean, maybe, I mean, they have all the signals, right? They have anonymized usage data. They have revenue data. They have all that stuff. There's no reason they shouldn't rank searches that way, right? Yeah. But then the other thing is one of the more important things for ranking downloads, I talked to Ariel McKaylee about this a couple of podcasts ago, is ratings. And so when you're a really good app and you're optimizing for people to rate the app, even if they aren't doing those deeper product signals, which there are hints that they are, but ratings, it's actually a good proxy for that. So when you're getting more and more ratings, it's building up that ASO. I wanted to switch gears and start talking pricing. So in the fitness app category, your app is dirt cheap. And so I wanted to talk through the thinking behind that, any experimentation you've done. So for those listening at home, the app is $3 a month, $24 a year, or $75 lifetime unlock. And that $75 lifetime unlock is about what most fitness apps charge annually. So yeah, I'd love to dig into your thinking on pricing and how that's been going for you. Just you. Eat, you eat ramen, David, and then you can undercut all your competitors <laughs> on margin. That's how capitalism works. It's brilliant. Yeah. So there were a couple apps when we started that had around similar pricing, maybe like 50% more expensive than us, but still kind of cheap. And to be honest, in the beginning, we were like, we don't feel comfortable charging more than them because, you know, we just started the subscription. We just started the app. Like, we don't feel like we're providing enough value for it to be more expensive than our competitors. So it started like that. And then it kind of transitioned into, hey, wait a minute. We're building a better app than our competitors. It's social and it's cheaper. It's like a no brainer for people to switch over from competitors to us. And yeah, we've just kind of left it like that for the past few years. It's definitely not the most optimized way to set up pricing for the app, but we have to balance something else, which is our main growth engine, which is social. If we're constantly experimenting with pricing, $25 a year, 50, 70, 100, 150, that user trust, especially because it's a social network and people talk, starts eroding over time. So we don't want to, one, like betray user's trust, although like 
pricing experiments doesn't necessarily have to do that. But going too far into that direction, I think definitely will. At the end of the day, like we want to optimize for people telling their friends about it. And we think that people are more likely to tell their friends about it if it's like an absolute like steal and it's like absolute no brainer. It's like, yeah, like the free version is great. So many like free features. The paid version is like pretty affordable. So it just becomes like an easier sell when people tell their friends about it, you know? It also goes into, you know, when you buy an app, you're paying for their acquisition model in a lot of that cases, as well. right? right? So like, yeah. <laughs> like apps that have to clear $80 and actually Nico, friend of the pod, revenue cat investor was just on the 20 VC podcast, uh, Harry Stebbings podcast talking about this, that first year renewal and that first year LTV as being such an important for like profitable acquisition models and scaling. But as a bootstrapped deal where you guys don't necessarily have to play that game in order to like prove out a growth rate and prove out all these things, you're doing the right, like you said, it's unoptimized. That's only locally in terms of maximum extraction, right? You're not thinking about all the other things that go into what makes you guys a challenger in the space. If you were charging the same as, I don't know who Fitbot or whoever your next biggest competitor is, you wouldn't have an opportunity. You have to create an opportunity for you, right? You have to zig when they zag and pricing can be a way, you know, and I I think that's important too. You know, we have tools for this now and I'm always hammering on pricing as a big lever, but you can't factor every single thing in, right? You can't factor in broader marketing strategy in terms of like, I like how you said, just look at all of the objections in your product and like, you're able to say, you know, there's actually probably four things there. It's like, can it be cheaper? Can it be better? And can it be like more well-known or something like this? But the fourth is like, can we operate in a way that lets us do all of those things? So the customers get all the things they want. The company has to suffer, but it just probably means you have like a different kind of operating model, right? Like in the back end, you're not necessarily pouring into super expensive acquisition and things like this. So like in terms of organic versus inorganic are you pushing inorganic installs at all like is that something that you've tried or is it for you mostly about the organic so we've probably spent under 15k in ads ever okay (laughs) which is like (laughs) probably your competitor's daily budget (laughs) which is basically nothing (laughs) and a lot of it was just like credit that we've gotten by like okay sure so no the answer is no you haven't spent (laughs) anything on acquisition which is even better because then like all of your velocity is free and clear and above water right yeah which is you know incredible yeah we have this like really long vision with heavy we really think that given enough years we can get to like 100 million users. We're at 2 million now. Hopefully it doesn't take us 50 years. Well, you'll be at three in like a month by, <laughs> if I keep carrying this trajectory yeah, we'll out. See. I think if you look at super successful, like, you know, there's like really successful products and companies. And then there's like the massive unicorns that have gone viral, right? The Facebooks, the Twitters, the Stravas. A lot of those, like, I don't think they ever spent any money on acquisition. It was just purely social and building a great product. And that's kind of what we're trying to go for. Maybe not getting (laughs) billions of users. I don't think the market is big enough. But this pricing allows us to build this social growth engine that could lead us there. I don't think that we'd be able to grow to 100 million users by jacking up the prices to 75 bucks and then all of a sudden starting to spend money on Facebook ads. 
the comparison you make, you mentioned Facebook, you know, as a comparable growth machine when Facebook was growing, right? They were not paying to acquire users. I think about Microsoft as well as a company, like I'm sure in their enterprise segments later stage they were, but in the early days, they raised like a very small amount of venture capital and were basically profitable the entire time. And you're like, oh yeah. And they're like a giant business and still are, right? Kind of same with Google too. Maybe not even thinking about their ads product, but just thinking about the core product, they didn't have to acquire users, right? They didn't have to pay to acquire users. It was just all through. And like, yeah, I do kind of agree that if you can do it without having to pay to acquire users, obviously that's ideal. I don't think that's not a path for anybody, but like, I do think that there are some advantages, like if you can figure out how to grow without this, and then it becomes one of the tools you can potentially use later on. And every dollar you spend in, in organic acquisition is going to go a lot further than it would if you were purely starting from that model. Yeah. And this is not to say that this is something that we're like looking into and that could be really beneficial for us. It's just that so far paid acquisition, we haven't been able to crack yet. But you're not not spending on marketing. I noticed that you had an open position for, I believe it was a social media marketer. And I saw that that position has been closed. Also, you guys have amazing content on your website. Your blog is really rich and, oh, and awesome. good. Thanks. Stuff like that. What's that person doing? So you're not not spending money on marketing. You're just not spending money on the typical like paid user acquisition where it's like 15k a month on whatever. But you're you are spending on marketing through building stuff yourself. So what are they working on? Yeah. So just because we've grown up to this point without doing a lot of the traditional marketing, we've kind of gone in an extreme with like product development and with marketing. We also have things to learn from the other side pricing experimentation, funnel experimentation, more paid advertising. So yeah, I think that's kind of the role of the new head of marketing that just joined us to start experimenting with a lot of these channels and seeing how paid could potentially accelerate the growth that we're seeing. It's always much easier with a product that has some measure of product market fit too. That's when marketing works. The worst you can do is like bring in a marketer when your product isn't really that figured out or doesn't have some proof of that flywheel or some basic thing. And then that person can have a really hard time being successful, right? Because they can only go so far as the product will let them. Yeah, I'm super excited for you, man. That getting to this stage with so much product market fit with that kind of social word of mouth component with good ASO search traffic and things like that, that now it can be an accelerant. So it sounds like with this new hire, you are going to take the business to that next level and figure out at least the low hanging fruit, right? Like you may not have to switch your model to like, I pay $80 to acquire a user. So I have to do an $80 annual that converts in seven days or whatever, but you'll be able to like figure out that low hanging fruit that's going to work. So when did you decide to start hiring other people? It's accelerant, but it's also a liability potentially, right? Like it can be a good thing and a bad thing. When did you guys make your first hire? And like, what was the decision like bringing somebody else in? Yeah, no. So we're 10 people right now, actually. So wow. <laughs> yeah, we're still a small team, but it's like a really good team size because communication hasn't broken down yet. We're still able to bounce ideas back and forth without too much management or bureaucracy like the pipeline. Yeah, is the number like of connections really hasn't exploded yet, which yeah. happens around like 15, 20 people. It's like there's more connections than you can possibly conceive once yeah. you get past that kind of 12, 15 people. Yeah, so we started hiring maybe around two and a half years ago. We started with support 
then a dev. And then we just went from there, another dev, designer, marketer. We could have stayed just me and Desmond. We could have just tried to go the indie route and just make it extremely profitable and like zero costs. Now you're somebody's boss, right? Like it goes from being just like having fun with your friend doing computer programs. And then the next thing you know, like now you've got payroll and healthcare and like all these responsibilities that kind of aren't as fun. No offense to anybody on the call that's an employee (laughs) of mine, but like it's a different game, right? Like it changes the game, but it didn't seem like that deterred you guys. It was definitely something that we had long conversations about because I think I was more on the side of like keeping it super lean and profitable. And Desmond had more of this excitement towards building a team and scaling the human side of heavy. Nothing is permanent. No decision is permanent or most. (laughs) So we just kind of gave it a try and we realized that we were just able to like amplify our vision for heavy so much more. And something that neither of us expected is that when it was just me and Des, we had so many arguments with product and tech and like direction and whatever back in the day when it was just the two of us. And now you have a common enemy. And <laughs> and, and now those discussions have gone down so much. Like we rarely have discussions anymore just because the main thing that made us get into arguments was like I was doing product and he was doing tech. So I would come up with a bunch of crazy ideas and then he'd be like, all right, slow down, cowboy. This is crazy, you know, and then there would be conflict there. And then the other side of like, okay, like I want it done this way. And he's like, okay, like this is the only way we can do it because of technical constraints. Right. But now that that's kind of gone, we're both thinking what's the best thing for the product. And since it's not us that we're like giving work to each other and we're creating this conflict, Now we can just think a lot more like big picture. We can be more relaxed. And I think it's been really good for our co-founder relationship, to be honest. Yeah, it's really tough. Miguel and I have experienced like a similar thing is when the person you're talking to is also the person that potentially has to like implement the stupid idea you're telling them right there. It's really hard to disconnect those two things. I don't think this ever stops. I think it's why having a team and sometimes good managers to kind of buffer and filter and refine things can be really good. And also, I mean, you should leave it open for the fact that you guys are now in year three or four, right? Like, I think also there's a lot of storming in co-founder relationships in those first couple of years. And then if it's anything like my co-founder relationship, you just learn the stuff you fight about and you just avoid it. <laughs> yeah. just like, this is just a thing we will always disagree and fight about and it doesn't produce anything useful for the company. So we'll just avoid it because it's not something I want to get into today. So, but that's really great. I mean, I think it's a big leap to bring in other people. It's a big leap to become a boss and like start building a company, not just a product. I think the way you articulated it there is something I asked the question because I, I've talked to a lot of founders and folks kind of at that precipice of like, ah, we were just ramen profitable, but now if I hire somebody, we won't be anymore. And like, they're kind of like, oh, do I just like give it away? You had the experience, which I had personally. And I think a lot of folks actually do when you hire the right folks is that like, oh, suddenly I can like walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Like I can be doing this thing that's important to me and I can be looking at the next thing. And if you have room to run, which, you know, it sounds like you guys do and a vision to work on, like, that's the reason people grow companies, right? It's because more people can do things. Now you'll get through all these like fun phase <laughs> transitions and stuff like that. But yeah, we're gonna have if you're thoughtful about, about it, they're <laughs> navigable. Yeah, give me a call. Uh, I can tell you what not to do at least. They're all navigable, right? If you yeah. go back to having like that vision and that idea of what you want to build and why. 
then everything else is downstream of that. I think as well, like it becomes a no brainer to start hiring people when the ambition you have outpaces your pace of development. So if you just keep wanting more and more and more and you can't fill up all those like ambition expectations, then you're kind of forced to hire. Like otherwise it's just going to take you forever and we don't live a million years, you know? Yeah. And I know you've shared download numbers, don't share revenue numbers, but it at least is directionally interesting that you've been able to hire 10 people. So it sounds like you've done really well. Well out of the killing zone, right? It's really great to see you guys going from this like side project to like a thing to like now, better or worse, you have a real business. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> all on awesome. Revenue Cat, huh? Yeah. How about that? Yeah. I'm just I'm just here for the journey to be supportive to SaaS <laughs> and whatever else I can do, you know? Awesome. Well, that is a great place to wrap up. It was so fun having you on the podcast, Guy. I'm going to share so the heavyapp.com and your LinkedIn and Twitter. I looked at your careers page. You're not currently hiring, but I'll go ahead and link to that in case you open up any roles. Anything else you wanted to shout out as we wrap up? No, just thanks for having me on. It was super fun. Thanks for building an amazing platform for us to grow our business on. It's definitely made us running our business a lot easier. No, I hope we played a very, very small part in that. I like to think most of that was internal, so, but I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> you did. All right. Thanks, Key. See you guys. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review in your favorite podcast player. You can also stop by chat.subclub.com to join our private community.